0: Welcome to your Active Stack Brief Podcast. My name is Luca Bertuzzi, your technology editor. This week, we take a closer look at the European Court of Justice ruling regarding data protection and competition enforcement. Today I'm joined by Christina Kafara, well-known competition expert, and Johnny Ryan, Senior Fellow at the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. Hello both. Hi. Hi Luca, good to be with you. Hi
1: christina yeah, Good to be here.
0: Great, uh, great having you here. Um, so we are here to discuss the European Court of Justice' uh, recent ruling on a high-profile case concerning the German Competition Authority, the Bundeskartellum and Meta. Uh, Many experts have been pointed to this uh, case for being uh, highly consequential uh, for enforcing the digital uh, arena. Uh, Christina, what are your uh, main takeaways from this
1: verdict?
2: Thank you, Luca. And let me start with the obligatory disclosure that I do all the time. Um, Just for the record, as I always say, I've been uh working both for governments and private clients uh adverse to google adverse to facebook i've done work for apple microsoft amazon and others so let me start with um indeed uh uh, saying that i'm particularly happy to be here on this podcast with johnny because the fundamentals of this uh judgment and its implication uh are something that johnny and i have been uh pursuing actively for quite some time it has been part of a campaign and a belief that we've held for some time that ultimately it is not possible today in the digital world to enforce competition law without uh really integrating it with data protection and this is something that Uh, we have pursued both in writing, we've written about the need for data protection people to be at the competition at the antitrust table, we've done events, we've been really pushing this line. Um, We started at a time when really the the, the two uh, competition and data protection uh, were deeply silent and remained silent. There was a a sense in which, you know, we do data protection and all the over here and the antitrust authorities do competition over there and the the two shall never meet. This judgment that we're talking about today is particularly consequential indeed against that background because it is the culmination of something which has been in the works for some time, which has been the poster child for this vision of an integrated pursuit of uh, antitrust violation and data protection violation that cannot be seen as separate. And just to give a little bit of a uh, quick background, as we know, this is a decision originally by the German Federal Cartel Office of uh, February 2019, which at the time was seen as completely pioneering because essentially it was. Uh, identifying violations of data protection rules and data processing on the basis of the GDPR as a form of abuse of dominance. And at the time, on the one hand, this was praised as visionary, and on the other hand, it was highly controversial because the traditional competition law wing was very much arguing that data protection is really nothing to do with antitrust. We have to look at other parameters for dominant, let the DPAs, the competition, the data protection authorities do their job, but we really are alongside them. We are not really uh, uh, integrating uh, this. And that's been a saga, effectively, because this original decision from 2019 was, of course, appealed. There's been multiple appeals in Germany. It was annulled by the regional court in Dusseldorf in 2020, again on traditional competition ground. Then the Supreme Court in Karlsruhe effectively reversed that annulment. And so Then the higher court in Dusseldorf effectively kicked it to the ECJ, referred it to the ECJ with a number of questions that were uh, broad and profound, uh, both for the enforcement of competition law and for uh, the the, uh, interpretation of GDPR. Now I'm not a GDPR expert, this is very much what Johnny is going to talk about, but the questions that were asked were deeply consequential and the court certainly did not disappoint. Just to summarize, it's a judgment which really needs to be read because it is absolutely transformative in so many ways for the way in which we have been doing these things and we're thinking about these things. So uh, it does come out with a very clear statement on what can be the role of GDPR violation in the finding of an abuse of dominance in terms of competition law, but it also uh, and this is incredibly interesting. Spends a lot of time going through how one interprets certain GDPR rules. Um, and that, I think, is again something that Johnny will talk about, but I cannot help but, but mention it. So, in terms briefly of, of the competition side of things, what the court finds is that um, essentially uh, compliance with GDPR is or can be a vital clue, as the, this is the word in the use for a national competition authority in deciding whether a dominant company behaves in ways that hinder competition. So this is pretty, pretty substantive and, and, and uh, important because uh, it does clearly states that in the finding of an abuse, it is necessary to examine whether this conduct complies not just with competition law, but also with protection of personal data. Because data is a key parameter of competition, and and therefore you cannot overlook it. So this is foundational because the court has stated in no uncertain terms that we're not looking at two things that are somewhat proceeding alongside. We are looking at two things that integrate. This is the mantra that Johnny and I have been pursuing Back in 2020, we cannot just say, we do this over here, we do this over there. The finding that GDPR is being breached is possibly integral to the finding of abuse. And then the court goes on to say a lot of interesting things, which are also incredibly poignant to me in terms of how does one interpret GDPR. They talk about sensitive data. So they talk about when is the processing Lawful and it debunks many of the kind of justifications that uh, Meta, in particular, has come up for justifying indeed its own uh, particular way of processing data. You know the notion that it is necessary; it is contractually uh, 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 in, in 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 it is in the contract, and therefore it is necessary for them to perform uh, the service that they that they offer. So the court is quite. Um, definitive about this, I'm sure that Johnny can elaborate on this, but to me, not as a GDPR person, but as a competition person, this is now fundamental. We can no longer proceed in these cases, in cases where dominant companies are processing data, are using data as part of their activity, ignoring the implication of that data processing for GDPR. I'll stop here for now.
0: Thanks, Christina. Indeed, there are uh, quite a few elements to unpack there. So over to you, Johnny. Uh, what's your view from a data protection perspective on the implications of this ruling?
1: Well, Luca, I think there are three categories of things in this big decision from the Court of Justice. The first really big one is that competition authorities must now follow the lead of data protection authorities. They must listen to what data protection authorities have said. However, there is also, and I think it's more than merely implicit, there is also a recognition in the judgment that there is a failure of the data protection authorities to do their jobs. So, for example, the word doubts, (laughs) amazingly, occurs eight times in the judgment. And that's in the context of a competition authority having doubts about the scope of assessment being conducted by a data protection authority. Now we should come back maybe in a in a later part of this conversation to the interplay set out by the court here, the rules for how a competition authority of a member state and a data protection authority should interact. But that's the first big uh, part of the decision from my perspective. And it's exactly as Christina was describing. The second of the three is about something that you know all about, Luca. It's called Special Categories of Data. And this relates to um, a type of personal data that could reveal a person's sexual orientation or sex life, their health, their politics, their philosophy, their religion, those intimate characteristics. Now, Meta has always claimed that outside of some very, very narrow, very narrow um, areas, it doesn't process any special category data. Now, for anyone who's ever scrolled through the newsfeed, that was clearly nonsense. Um, The court has now said that. So, this is for Meta quite a big deal. What the court is saying specifically is if a person visits a website, that is focused on, for example, sexuality or politics or something like that, that could be used to infer uh, special category data about the person. And because Meta has its own trackers integrated onto those websites, Meta receives those special category data and, of course, is processing them. So Meta can no longer claim, as it has consistently done, that it it isn't processing special category data. And that's very significant, not only for Meta, but for all similar businesses who have integrations with other websites and apps, Google, for example. If you're processing special category data, the only lawful way to do that is with something called explicit consent. Now, that's not just consent. It's a a kind of a double opt-in. So it's a pretty high bar. The only exception to that is if the person concerned has and I'm quoting manifestly made that data public now Meta's argument was well, uh, when Johnny, for example, went to the gay or straight dating website and clicked a like button or logged into that website, well, he was manifestly making his orientation public. The court has completely rejected that argument so This means Meta is processing special category data and does not have a lawful basis for having done so for many, many years. And it also applies, I suspect, to any similar digital firm. That's the second of the three. The third relates to lawful basis again. A big contentious issue in this case was the question of a contract. And this goes back Actually, it ties in several cases, not just this one. Meta's claim was that when the GDPR um, was applied in May uh, 2018, it moved from consent, without really making clear it was doing this, to contract as its lawful basis for processing people's personal data. The terms of that contract were very vague turns out unlawfully so. But Meta's understanding of them, uh, it purportedly was that a person who uses the social um, the, the social platform of Facebook, for example, is automatically signing away the use of their data to Meta for virtually anything Meta wants, including personalized advertising. Now, this was uh, a a feature of Max Schrems's and his organization Noib's complaint against Meta. And in October 2021, the Irish Data Protection Commission, um, with some very convoluted and Jesuitical and plainly wrong arguments, rejected Max Schrems's argument, which was very simple. It said, look, you can only use contract as a permission to use my personal data if the use of the personal data are essential and are required for the, for the thing I'm contracting with you to do. What the Irish Data Protection Commission said is essentially, no, we don't accept that. Uh, we think Meta should be allowed to use your data for um, advertising, etc., in order to provide you with the social network. What the court has said in this judgment is, and it's following here the European Data Protection Board's view as well, is that that's absolutely wrong, completely and entirely wrong, in fact, uh, and obviously wrong. What the court said is actually there is a test for contracts where data are at issue. The data that you allow to be processed under a contract must only be processed for purposes that are, and I'm quoting, objectively indispensable for a purpose that is integral to the contractual obligation intended. So that's paragraph 98. And I suspect that paragraph is going to be quite decisive for many digital businesses. It means that they can't have a data free for all internally that is covered by one of these broad, um, you know, use our service and you must accept our terms contracts. Now, very little meets the court's objectively indispensable test. And before I, I hand it back to you, or Christina, Luca, I'm going to give you an example. In paragraph 102, the court says that a social network does not necessarily need to require personalized content. Personalized content, in other words, recommendations algorithmically selected Based on a profile of you. Personalized content like that may be useful to the user. It may not be. It may be useful, but it's not essential and is therefore not objectively indispensable. So in this case, Meta needs to get consent. Only consent will work, says the court. No other lawful basis. It's throwing out um, legitimate interest for advertising. That's now completely in the grave as it. It evidently, was really, and um, it's throwing that out, and that was Meta's um, uh, lawful basis that it moved to when contract collapsed. And what the court is saying is, you must now have consent for every single processing purpose you use data for, and if that purpose uses data that you, as a company, have collected from some other source, for example through a like button that you have integrated in another company's website, you're going to need separate consent to use that data too. So this is really seismic because it means that a, a large conglomerate like Meta can no longer have a data free for all and not have each thing it's using data for be subject to consent, and in many cases, explicit consent.
2: And and Luca, this is really why, uh, I mean, I couldn't put it better than Johnny, but this is why, even from a competition perspective, I would urge the competition people not to just stop at the early part of the judgment that essentially establishes beyond doubt that it is necessary to work uh, in good faith and collaboratively between the NCA and the DPA, and it is necessary to uh, uh, effectively take into account the DPA view, and more than that, it is not just saying that uh, a, a, a judgment that GDPR is being violated is integral to competition, but the incredible reach of this judgment is in the kind of things that Johnny has described. It is. Uh, foundational in establishing what some of these key principles and key building blocks of data protection, from what is sensitive data to is to what is lawful processing of data to what is actually acceptable consent, um, are really ground and nailed by this judgment. Um, which also says things like you cannot assume that consent. I mean, consent is a particularly problematic thing when you have such an asymmetry in power between the data subject and the company. And it is the burden of proof of the dominant company to show that they have actually sought uh, consent. Consent cannot be presumed. I mean, these are absolutely seismic, as Johnny says, not. Of course, that's why this judgment is so exciting for the data protection community. But I also would say that it is so absolutely revolutionary also for uh, the competition people.
0: Uh, thanks both. Um, Johnny, before I, I give you back the the floor, um, I wanted to, to take something with Christina because uh, you mentioned that this uh, new doctrine uh, that the court outlines uh, should be to break finally the, the silos between data protection and competition, as you have advocated for some time now. Uh, but we, you also said this is not the case, uh, both at the EU and national level. I mean, uh, if we take landmark cases like the Google Fitbit merger, uh, if I remember correctly, the commission did ask the opinion of uh, data protection authorities and agreed to the merger anyway. Uh, we have now Amazon's takeover of iRobot where the commission did not ask the opinion of data protection authorities. So, I mean, breaking the silo is easier said than done. What what does it mean in practice for for the work of these authorities?
2: Well, of course, this particular judgment will be argued to apply to conduct cases where a breach of GDPR, as we discussed, becomes relevant in the finding of dominance and abuse. And the question is, it will be put, what does it have to do with mergers specifically? Now, I would like to take a fairly optimistic view in the following sense, of course, Again, as you know, Johnny and I campaigned quite actively in Google Fitbit for a more holistic view of the case that didn't just look at traditional categories of foreclosure and uh, anti-competitive harm, but took into account the nature of the data that was being effectively included into the Google data firehose by incorporating uh, Fitbit information. The commission at the time essentially had what appeared to be some sort of conversation with the data protection regulator, and seem to end up in, don't call us, we'll call you, thank you for your input. But time is moving forward. And I would like to think that this kind of judgment cannot be swept under the carpet. It cannot be the case that today, yes, of course, we've had other cases in which nothing much has happened uh you know johnny was active in uh the meta customer case trying to draw the attention of the commission to the data implication of that we've had meta giffy we had multiple other cases in which this was kind of mentioned yes data is part of uh the description of the business but the competition analysis effectively was elsewhere traditional categories of foreclosure traditional categories of leverage which is very much what I've been uh, somewhat railing against, we are talking about businesses whose entire model is founded on exploitation of data surveillance and use of this data in ways that are at odds, as we just heard from Johnny, and the court has confirmed, with fundamental principles of GDPR. So I would like to think that the competition authorities the NCAs, now in the face of this judgment cannot be quite as cavalier frankly as they have been so far and continue to say well we do monkey power over here market power is another thing we cannot really mix that with data protection let the data protection authority do their job it can no longer be the case they need to consult they need to see whether even in a merger you are uh, combining data you are incrementally adding data flows to your uh, uh, set of assets that can uh, allow you to exercise that market power, but importantly, whether that data is being added and included and used without uh, meeting the data protection basic rules. So, I think this is true. So far, it's not happened. We will see what happens in iRobot, but I'm not... Totally pessimistic.
0: We are moving forward. Let me turn this to you, Johnny. Are we moving forward uh, in terms of integrating the the two uh, fields?
1: Well, I think yes, I think so. Um, Let me answer by referring to two different things. First, there's a very important paragraph in this decision. It's paragraph 103, and that paragraph says the various products of services and meta, because they can be used independently of each other, and um, they are treated differently within that conglomerate. So what the court says is consistent, I'm quoting now, consistent and seamless use of meta group services, end quote, is not a justification for combining them all under uh, under the same lawful basis. So you you can't have a conglomerate put everything under one brand and say, okay, you're accepting the use of all of your data by this one brand. The, the, the justification that this essentially, this tying and bundling is a seamless benefit um, to the user, that's just been thrown out. Now that's a big deal. It's a big deal in data protection law. It's a big deal in competition law, I think. The second thing then is, the second of the two is to think about how this decision specifies that national competition authorities have to now work with data protection authorities. What the court has said is, if a national competition authority is going to investigate something in the GDPR as part of an abuse of dominance case, before it does that, it must consult with a data protection authority. Now, if the data protection authority does not reply, or if it replies and says, feel free to go ahead, then the competition authority can proceed. If the data protection authority has already made a decision in that area, the The competition authority must take that decision on board, but it's also free to draw its own conclusions insofar as those conclusions relate to competition as opposed to data protection law. Now, where the court has left things a little bit vague, unfortunately, is where the problem really arises. An awful lot of this decision occurs, I think, because the data protection authorities haven't really delivered on their their responsibilities. I mentioned that the word doubts appear uh, eight times in the judgment. What's happening there, and it starts really at paragraph 57, is that where a a national competition authority um, is aware that a data protection authority is looking at a company, but where the competition authority has doubts about what that DPA has done, it's supposed to go to that DPA and try to dispel those doubts, try to resolve that. Now, of course, if the DPA doesn't engage at all, then the competition authority can proceed with its own investigation. But the question I'm left with when I read this decision is, what happens when you have a highly motivated and well-resourced national competition authority that wants to engage with substantive issues as is the case with, with Munt and the Bonds Cartel act. And it finds itself having to engage with a lead supervisory authority like the Irish DPC, which may very well merely go through the motions of engaging with it, but will actually not dispel those doubts. Can a data protection authority indefinitely delay a national competition authority from investigating? And that is not answered, I don't think, in this decision. So what we might find now is that we have a resolution of this question about how data protection authorities and competition authorities work. But we have a lingering, a persisting um, vagueness about whether data protection authorities can stymie competition authorities. I don't think the competition Uh, that competition authorities would have to engage with these issues if the data protection authorities were efficiently doing their job. So the fact that a competition authority is in this space anyway probably suggests there's a problem. And if that problem persists, it's not clear to me from this decision what a national competition authority is, is then supposed to do.
0: Uh, thanks, Johnny. And just to add to your argument, I mean competition authorities have are not the only ones that have started moving in the data protection domain. We have seen consumer protection authorities uh, stepping into um, uh, stepping in when uh, on the case of uh, WhatsApp privacy policy. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: but
2: just to just yeah. to add, look at, I mean, what, what Johnny is uh, clearly uh, sounding out about is his own frustration, which are well uh, motivated with data protection authorities and the way in which they've been really performing and fulfilling their mandate. My perspective is a frustration of a different kind, and we are coming together here, which is with the competition agencies, um, overlooking this entire area, is relevant to what they do. So the sense in which I completely support Johnny's concerns about, well, uh, are we going to get the data protection authorities really to play here in a meaningful way? But the other problem we were faced with, and I saw it most clearly from the competition side, is that the competition people couldn't care less about data protection. They always thought it was something not for them. We do market power, we do our economic models, we do our stuff here, we we don't have means of incorporating that analysis in what we do. So the fact that uh, the highest court in, in the land, if you like, is essentially saying, for purposes of finding abuse, finding market power, this is foundational, I think moves the dial for the competition people, or it should do. Because remember, it's not just the DPA agencies have not been doing their job. The competition community has been blind and unwilling to engage with this issue. So this can only be pushing in the right direction to some extent.
0: Thanks, Christina. And speaking about future enforcement actions, I would be interested in picking your brains on how do you see this new doctrine, if you like, influencing the the way the Commission will enforce the Digital Markets Act, which also has some provisions on uh, data sharing for gatekeepers.
1: I have a, a slightly abstract answer, Luca. We are now speaking half a decade after the GDPR was applied. And remember that the GDPR did not substantively change most of the data protection law that predated it in the Data Protection Directive. So Meta has been in breach of the law in very, very fundamental ways for at least half a decade, and it's not much of an argument to say far, far longer than that. Now, the example of the GDPR shows that um, you can have a company like Meta um, make uh, attractive sounds about user empowerment and about consent and choice and transparency and control. And with those attractive sounds, it can allay, uh, it seems, the concerns of regulators for years until finally the issue goes before the ECJ. Uh, I think the example that should strike um, the commission DMA unit is that when they ran their workshop on consent in Brussels two months ago, a representative of Meta turned up and said, "Oh, consent's very tricky. How are we going to give people free choice? We're so concerned with empowering the user of Meta services so that they're in control. And uh, you know, um, let's agonize over this question of consent. And please join us in this um, in this pursuit." What amazed me at that workshop was that no one from the DMA team uh, tittered or giggled or laughed, and they should have known that that is the same ruse that Meta pulled on the GDPR community for half a decade. So I'm hoping that this example of how wrong the Irish Authority, the Irish Data Protection Authority, got it, and how long it took to resolve, I'm hoping that it should help the DMA unit make the the mental shift um, to being robust, if necessary, and it certainly is necessary, adversarial enforcers, rather than what some of them may believe themselves to be compliance partners. Uh, The time for that is long past.
2: I'll I'll add uh, my own view uh, very briefly. I remember that workshop and I remember being on a plane and I was refraining myself uh, from shouting at the screen uh, as I was watching it because I shared Johnny's frustration that what was being done there was performative. You had the meta representative coming in and looking concerned and saying, we have hundreds of engineers working on this, but this is a common issue. It's so complicated. Help us find the right solution, which is the standard playbook of tech we don't know what to do please help us regulate in the meantime things get kicked down in the in the long grass for uh, another half a decade. So John and you have also expressed the strong views on the on the uh, essentially the the formulation of 5.2 of the DMA the way in which that particular article deals with uh, data processing and, and effectively putting together data and we know now, that uh, these companies have pursued their designation in a way that completely uh, identifies their objectives. Companies like Meta, like Google, have pursued a broad notion of designation precisely because under a broad definition of designated a gatekeeper, then it is uh, somewhat uh, more feasible to mingle and mix the data. So this is a very, very live Issue for DMA enforcers, and like like Johnny, I think it is all part of needing to take a real aggressive view about it. Um, you know, workshops are great, and people can go there and meet in Brussels and just uh, have somebody just say, "Oh, I don't mean to suggest that you would do something as uh, Hinos did, but you know, when they certainly intend to do exactly that." Yeah. And so, and so that I think uh, is where maybe this judgment ought to be flagged under the noses of people again, uh, because it is not is not for the faint-hearted,
1: in my view. Christina, let me add to that. Um, I, I gave a very woolly first answer, but there is a concrete point here as well. Article thirty-six, paragraph three of the DMA and recital sixty-eight make it clear that the commission has the power to monitor gatekeepers' compliance with their GDPR obligations, the relevant ones. And those obligations are precisely the ones that the court has ruled on. So today, um, this gatekeeper, which has been designated, is infringing the law. Uh, That is clear. Now, the referring court When I say that is clear, it is highly unlikely that the referring court will now say anything that deviates from the direction of the ECJ's um, decision. There are points in that decision where the ECJ says this particular aspect is subject to verification by the referring court. So unless there are any surprises in what the referring court ultimately says in the final decision at the national level, the 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 dma unit can now say to the to meta you are already infringing the dma because the dma requires that the gdpr be complied with on these points so they they have the whip hand and they should now be moving towards immediately demanding with a suitable data protection authority meta's record of processing activities META is supposed to have a list of all of the purposes it uses data for, and from that list the DMA unit should be able to see what all of the lawful bases are and it will then be inescapably clear to the DMA unit what, where the illegality is and where the legality is in, in, in META's processing. And the same logic can be applied to the other gatekeepers too.
0: Thank you, Johnny, and thank you, Christina. I I think uh, we will have to watch and see now how the Commission uh, moves forward, the enforcement of the DMA. I'll be happy to host you again in a few years, uh, just to see how far uh, we have gone from this point (laughs) onward. Let me just thank again, Cristina Cafara, competition expert, and Johnny Ryan, senior fellow at the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. It was great to have you today. That's all we got time for this week. Don't forget to sign up to our free Tech Brief newsletter to stay on top of tech news and digital policy developments in the EU and beyond. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast published on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Stitcher and Amazon Music. I'm your Luca Bertuzzi, and thank you for listening.